0: What is vital here is that God has invited us to become part of a process of productivity and meaningful work. Without Him, we're only with human limited perspectives and resources. And as we've just had a conversation about staff at a school, how easily our motivation to do even great work like that can be jeopardized by not having an adequate theology that adds the eternal dimension to everything that you're doing so only the will of god can set you free to be who you really are and god calls us by christ to come to christ and then to go for christ And God normally calls us along the lines of what gives us gladness, in line with our abilities and talents that He's already given to us or is about to give to us for this next demand on our lives. So the purpose of our gifts is not self-promotion. It's not celebrity status. It's actually for service to God and to other people. And that's the most fulfilling motive of doing anything. This is a stewardship So look at this brilliant quotation from Os Guinness in connection with the divine role in sorting this out for us. In effect, God is not like some divine employment agency where you've had your interview and God is scratching his head, wondering, oh, where can I best put hair? (laughs) Goodness (laughs) sake, let me see, this is really difficult. (laughs) No, says Os Guinness. Look, The truth is that God is not finding us a place for our gifts, but that God has created us and our gifts for a place of His choosing. And we will only ever be ourselves when we finally get there. Now that's worth running by you again, isn't it? The truth is, God is not finding us a place for our gifts, but that God has created us and our gifts for for a place. And we will only find a place of His choosing, and we will only ever be ourselves when we finally get there. So the Puritan, William Perkins, was right when he said, every calling must be fitted to the man, and the man to the calling. And the challenge is, do you fit? It's the call or summons to that which needs doing, essentially. And you're the person to do it. Have you found that yet? When you do, you'll be able to say, you know, this is what I was made for. And this is what I was always meant to do. You're very blessed indeed if you can be able to say that. It means to be and feel, fulfill, fully human. And to feel fully human, you need, well, you need... Five things. You need one, God, two, a job, three, other people, four, worship, and five, recreation. So you can have a rest from some of that. (laughs) So, to help you enjoy this, we're now going to look at what has gone wrong in people's thinking. There's only two types of theology, good theology and bad theology. So we're going to look at some bad theology now. The philosophical contamination. We need to note here the influence of Greek thinking, ancient Greek thinking, on modern Western civilization. It's there in our architecture and our sports, an emphasis on competition, our worship of heroes and performers in sport and in drama and uh, drift towards paganism again, which is large-scale now in Western society, and has affected everything. But when you think of that, the Hebrew mindset, and the Bible particularly, can you think of one sporting hero that the Hebrews admired in biblical times? Can you think of one actor who won an Oscar? Can you think of one famous building other than the temple in Jerusalem? And then, it was because God was the main attraction, anyway. Can you think of one singer who had a number one hit in the charts? Those things simply weren't that important to them. They did sing, they did have heroes, they probably played games, but you don't hear a lot about it. Jesus alluded to children playing games in the streets, but they didn't become Olympic competitions. (laughs) Instead, what they valued was God-centered living and the presence of God in lives that glorified Him, no matter what the work they were involved in. God wants us all to become servants then, not celebrities. That is not the meaning of life, becoming famous. You might get famous by serving God, but that's not the motive to do it. So, lacking a full blown doctrine of creation, the Greeks divided all reality into two opposite and rarely joined realities matter and spirit. And matter didn't matter. In fact, it was downright evil. Whereas in Hebrew thinking, matter matters because God made it, and it's not dirty or unspiritual because he declared everything good so the Greek thinking led to a distinction you're familiar with between the sacred, the spirit and the secular the sacred is considered higher indeed the highest but matter and what goes on in this world is of a lower order and the, the the best thing to do is escape it into another reality So the perfect is the spirit, the higher, the life of the intellect and the soul and the spirit. And the rest is the permitted. I suppose it's a necessity, but it's a necessary evil to have to work. The contemplative contemplative life is the supreme thing. The active life is rather a drag and a burden for us. So there are three emphases that the Greeks have left on Western culture to this day. One, that some activities are more important than other activities. So the distinction here is between the sacred and the secular. So sacred work includes, in Western history, becoming a vicar, or a priest, or a nun, or a monk, or a missionary. And that's valued more than secular work, like becoming a miner, or a teacher, or a postman, or or a builder. Some jobs, then, are more important than others. Mental work is valued enormously more than manual work, in this thinking, so that a university professor has more status than a country farmer. You're saying, yeah? Yeah. That's just the way things are, isn't it? Well, think about it like this. If it was the case of a professor of philosophy being eliminated from the planet, or a road sweeper, which one would you choose? Which one could we do without? (coughs) A second distinction it's led to is that some people are more important than others then. So they tended towards ranking people in various hierarchies of value according to what they were and what they do. So kings, noblemen, men, women, Going down the slide. slide. Kings, noblemen, men, women, artisans, slaves. And in the same way, therefore, white-collar workers are more important and more valued in our culture than blue-collar workers, because they have more status and earn more pay, generally speaking. Well, that's changing with plumbers, at least, anyway. (laughs) And then three, leisure activities are more important than work. And that's why they had a huge volume of slaves doing the work for them. As did Rome. It's said that in biblical times, in the New Testament times, in Rome, two-thirds of the Roman population were slaves. No wonder they feared a slave revolution or riot. They would be heavily outnumbered. You could buy a slave for 30 pieces of silver, which means that For a day, pay for an ordinary artisan, one piece of silver. For 30 days' pay, you could buy a slave to do your work for you. Two-thirds, then, of that society consisted of slaves. And the rest had the ideal of living for leisure all of their lives, which became decadence. And um, warped, perverted, debauched, squandering of the only life they had. They prized time off for holy days, public games, debates, philosophy. The Greeks had everything we now have access to on television, except, well, except the Simpsons. They had sport. they had comedies, they had history, they had discussions, they had drama, they had soap operas, they had cruel, violent entertainments, they also had leisure centers, fitness suites, shopping malls, easy sex, and recreational drugs. Doesn't that sound familiar? But the coming of Christianity usually challenged all of that as the meaning of life and brought brought something else more central to it. So note in the Bible, by contrast to what I've just been saying about Greek thinking, there is nothing secular, except sin. Everything else is sacred, and to be done to the glory of God. You can't sin to the glory of God. But that's the only dualism the Bible teaches about life. Everything matters, and can please God, except sin. So all of life can be consecrated to God. Now that's a big surprise to some Christians. Brought up on this dualism in the medieval Catholic Church right through to the present day. In the Bible, another thing is that we all have different gifts, so it's not a matter of status and competition in what God has gifted you to do. And God frequently, if you'll notice this in the Bible, chooses the last, the least, and the lowest to uh, to have special honor and special privileges given to them. I've lost count the number of pastors and leaders I've met who you would never have dreamt what background they were called from. Nothing, nobodies, poverty, broken homes, damaged personalities, full of melancholy and rejection. And God transformed them and has redeemed them, and he's given them a call in their life to preach his word to build his church. See, God, God chooses the people who are not and are nothing. Because God is no, no respecter of persons. He doesn't rank people like that. His choices are astonishing to us. He chooses the lowly and the despised and gives them great distinction in His kingdom just to say, See? <laughs> and then in the Bible, all work is special if it's done to the glory of God. And mental work is not considered superior to manual work. Both are vital for human welfare. You're not being fully human if you're not using your brain and your hands. Moses was a shepherd for 40 years, but had been highly educated in Egypt for 40 years before that, prepared for leadership. And David was a shepherd, very faithful shepherd. God was watching that boy when those... uh, wolves or bears or lions and cougars came and attacked his sheep. He didn't say, oh, dad's not gonna, I'm not gonna risk my life, my life for one of those little lambs. Dad will never miss it anyway. No, David was faithful. He took whatever he had in his hand, his staff, his sling, and at the risk of his own life, he'd save that sheep. And God said, "Ooh, that's faithfulness. I'm gonna have that boy. No one was watching him. No one was going to reward him. He just did it because it was the right thing to do. No wonder he made him king, eventually. So in the Bible, God values all kinds of work. Amos was a dresser of fig trees. Jesus was a carpenter mason. Paul was a tent maker. Peter, James, and John were fishermen. And we all need work. We can look and see results coming from it. You know, that's so difficult in the ministry. It's hard to see the results most of the time. We don't produce widgets. We can't count a bin of productivity at the end of the day. It's more mysterious to get a handle on what we've produced as pastors and leaders in the church. And that's why you can be given to burnout very easily. Because you have to perform, but you don't know what you've performed half the time. (laughs) You're just just sowing your seeds to the wind and you don't know if any of it's going to take fruit. So we all need work we can look to with satisfaction. Manual work carries that, con- that idea to a high degree. But if we want to stay mentally well, physical work is good for all of us. And notice this, that Jesus Christ himself dignified manual work. He was apprenticed into his adoptive father's trade. The technone, the Greek word is. A translated carpenter. And that is, he was a mason, carpenter, bricklayer. He was a chippy and builder. So he used his hands. So he would have had strikingly sinewy muscular physique, that's for sure, because he worked 18 years as a chippy, carpenter, mason. And did excellent work by all accounts. And then God called him to the ministry. And he only did that for three years. I read a piece which absolutely fascinated me in researching the life of Jesus. That the 2nd century apologist, Justin Martyr, you may have heard of him. You can look him up on Google if you want. Grew up in the hills over from Nazareth. He He grew up in Galilee, Justin Martyr. And he noted in one of the things that is recorded from him that plows made by Jesus were still being used widely in his day a hundred years later. Now that's what you call craftsmanship. Can you imagine Jesus doing anything less than that? Didn't make shoddy plows so they'd have to buy another one in six months. (laughs) It fell apart. It wasn't a branch of MFI. (laughs) The workshop at uh, Nazareth. So in the Bible, also we can say that slaves are ultimately liberated in the Bible. Look at Paul's addresses to slaves in his letters. And the leisure classes are set to work in the Bible. Because work is now done to please God, serve our neighbor, and help fulfill our lives. So all that matters in the Bible is that your work is not immoral. And it's not illegal. So you can glorify God by becoming a drug pusher, or a prostitute, or a pimp, or owning a bookmaker's shop, or running a lottery. But you can glorify God in just about everything else if it's not immoral or illegal. So all that matters then is that you discover what God particularly wants you to do and bring God into it. So it has the eternal dimension, whether it's a teacher, a playwright, a road sweeper, a nurse, an architect, a builder, an engineer, or a decorator, or that you make screws, or you you install doors in buildings. Whatever you do can be done to the glory of God. So let's look at some of the moral repercussions of this. The big question is, why then has work become such a chore and dissatisfying drudgery to so many? And the answer lies in Genesis 3 it is because of sin entering the world. Sin has separated us from God, distanced us from each other, and drained us of our abilities, motivation, and power. Now, these can be redeemed in Jesus. But let's not be in denial that sin hasn't touched every area of our thinking, of our bodies, of our motivations, of our lives, because it has. Genesis 3.16, there is a curse on the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And the woman was cursed in her relationships. The place she finds most significance, particularly in her relationship with her children, uh, with her husband, and then her later capacity to conceive and bear children. If that is her calling, of course. Not all women are called to be married or called to have children. But what she'll be tempted to do according to God is manipulate and seek to control her husband, defying the created order. And she's certainly going to experience pain in childbirth and pain in raising those children subsequently. So God is striking at the very heart of the way she's been createdly designed as a partner to her husband. Not adversarial, but mutually serving alongside one another with their mutual abilities and particular perspectives. And to be fruitful, not only in planting and sowing and reaping, but in having children and filling the earth with their offspring. But now, all parenting is difficult but it can be redeemed in the Gospel. And we can learn skills to do it really well and we can grow up to be proud of our children because they come good. Modern feminism carries abundant examples of what we've been talking about of the hatred of men and the resistance to marriage and the view of children as a ball and chain around a woman's legs. It's been our joy over the years my wife and I to teach generations of students who've come from our churches and one of the most thrilling things we see is that they totally change their mind about marriage and family and particularly the women. It's been amazing to see that and we love it. And they've come back again and again and said, "I would have missed all this if you guys hadn't put a different mind in me. Happily married with wonderful kids that they love." So isn't that that's the gospel. Mm-hmm. Gospel redeems things. Now most of our problems are at root moral problems. Not that work is sinful, but that we are. And so all that we are and all we do has been cursed on account of that. And note, we're not simply referring to individual choices and abandonment to sin, personal propensity to indulge in sin all the time. There's a systemic evil in all of society, whether you like it or not, or whether you're responsible for it personally or not. Every society, every organization of men, every hospital, every firm, every business has systemic evil in it, which only the Gospel can transform. So, there's a war on to get the kingdom into these places. And it means that he can take captive, Satan can take captive whole institutions Corporations, organizations, communities, schools, colleges. And the gospel and the influence of the Holy Spirit can be evicted for long periods of time. It can happen even to churches, for God's sake. So a kind of detrimental force is always working outside of us. And inside, if it can, comes from the outside in. So that from the inside out, the influence is all wrong. So Genesis 3.17 can be some 17 to 19, where God has cursed Adam and Eve for on account of their known rebellion against God. And Adam was held more responsible. We didn't fall in Eve, we fell in Adam. And um, because he, he sinned second, but he was more responsible before God. And the result is this, birth became painful, life became hard, sweat of your brow toil, Work became toil, and death became certain. So that's the world we live in, and that's why the gospel is needed, and that's why the second Adam, Jesus, came to the fight and to the rescue, so that by his righteousness, everything could go into a beautiful reverse and be redeemed progressively, which it's been going on for 2,000 years now. Adam's work became harder because there were thorns and thistles. Adam's body became weaker weaker. So it was by the sweat of his brow now. Adam's calling became less interesting. It would be painful toil. And Adam's life became shorter and less fulfilled than it otherwise would have been. Until you return to the ground, to dust you will return, for from dust you came. So that's the sad consequence that explains all the futility people feel but the gospel turns it round. So let's look at the spiritual redemption of work. This is vital because we need to be delivered from the immorality of the workplace, the inhumanity and idolatry of the workplace, which I began with last night. The good news is that because of Christ and the gospel, all of our life is progressively being redeemed and transformed. I'm not like my father or my stepfather. I could have been worse than both of them. But the gospel came in when I was 14 years of age. I've not been a dad like my dad was. I've been a good dad. I love my sons. I now love my three daughters-in-law, and I adore my two daughters, uh, my two granddaughters. God gave me a different heart. Before I even married my wife at 21, I read about 10 books on how to have a happy marriage, because they were being published in abundance in the 1970s. And I wanted to know how not to be like my dad and how to be like Christ wanted me to be. And I do know, I think I've done a pretty good job by the grace of God. My wife still loves me. It was our 36th anniversary last Tuesday. <laughs> and, you know, this is the gospel. If it worked for me, it could work for anybody. So the spiritual redemption amounts to this. Let me give you this John Stott definition of what work is again because it's so great. Work is the expenditure of energy, mental, manual, or a combination of the two, which brings fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. Now wouldn't you like a job that did that every day? This is why the Hebrews have always viewed manual work differently from the Greeks and Romans. Because manual work is absolutely necessary, and good, and beneficial to the community, and glorifying to God. David Ben-Gurion, one of the founders of modern, the modern state of Israel, said this, We Hebrews do not consider manual work a curse, or a bitter necessity, not even a means of making a living. We consider manual work a high human function. It is a basis of human life. The most dignified thing in the life of a human being, and which ought to be both free and creative. Men ought to be proud of manual work. Do you know where he got that from? He's a Jew. (laughs) And he's read the Old Testament. That's the way the Bible thinks. So Martin Luther was right when he said... To his contemporaries during the Reformation, peasants included. Your work is a very sacred matter. God delights in it, and though He wants to bestow through it, He wants to bestow His blessings on you. This praise offered up in work should be inscribed on every tool, on the very forehead and faces that sweat from toiling. Holiness to the Lord. This is true of all honest and decent work. With Stone for God. Checking out groceries in Tesco's or Sainsbury's. Stacking shelves to replace those groceries. Cleaning and removing dirt. Selling futures in the stock exchange. Teaching kids or respraying a car back to pristine condition after the weather has done its work on it. Are you glad all these things are actually done? the Puritans saw this they knew that we were serving God and sustaining God's world through manual work and blessing your family and the commonwealth or economy of people all doing the tasks God had given us to do that were needed to be done now you may be feeling like small fry in your own estimation but God calls you to do things which are either great or small but they're all necessary according to the talents the Lord has given you so the Puritans taught that we're involved in world-making when we go to work, pursuing the call that's on our lives. Whether that's a cultural call to paint and draw or design, or music, m- p- compose music and aesthetic articles to beautify your home, or a political call for leadership in the, in the Commonwealth and its politics and government, or a technical call which you design and experiment with the best way of making things so that they last. It could often take a hundred years to build a cathedral, and most of the people who start on it are dead by the end of it. But nevertheless, they're building for a future, something that will last. I'm not a big fan of worshiping in cathedrals, but I'm so glad our cities have them. I can certainly appreciate the beauty and the workmanship that went into them. So the problem with many modern Christians is not that they aren't where they should be, but that they aren't what they should be where they are. Not that they aren't where they should be, but that they aren't what they should be where they are. So that brings me finally to Colossians 3. The passage we read last night, let me read it again in your hearing. It's typical of the New Testament approach to this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Now, masters, Paul always deals with the reciprocal relationships husbands, wives, fathers, children, masters, uh, servants, uh, governors, and governed. <coughs> masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, you've got the headings here, haven't you, for this? But this is so beautiful. Five things then about our work now we're Christians. This is where we've been leading to for over two hours. The first thing to realize is Christ is your new boss. That <laughs> you love black people. <laughs> 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 it sounded like a black person, I don't know who it was. <laughs> Christ is your new boss. Slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything, and do it because in ser- sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. A first aid instructor in a factory was asked, on, asked an employer, if you discovered you had rabies, what would you do? And the worker said, I'd bite my supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> now listen, whoever your earthly manager, employer, or supervisor is, you are really working for the Lord so even when your earthly boss doesn't notice you or isn't even looking at what you produce and how you work Christ is so this means your work is an aspect of your worship for all your work is full time ministry for the Lord The Lord is not as hard to please, however, as some employers are. He notices all you do, and he praises you for it. And not only that, he'll pay you for it. How do I know that? Because every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no changing. So whatever salary or pay grade you're on presently is a gift of God to you. And God's overseen it. And God can arrange promotions whenever he wants. He can even arrange pay rises whenever he decides it's appropriate. And it doesn't matter what your boss thinks, because he'll work on your boss to make sure it happens. You might find that hard to believe, but that's what's happened to me all through my life. God's provisioned. And the Lord is not as hard to please then as some of those employers are. Christ is interested more in you and how you do your job than in what job you do. Mm. Martin Luther therefore said, all work ranks the same with God. Remember that lady I was telling you about on last night, who had been intimidated by her female boss, who is manipulative and controlling, won't allow her a lunch break, she's gone into fear. And a a prophetic word brought her forward along with 10 others, incidentally, in a a prayer meeting of 70 people, 10 10 Christians came forward saying they were full of fear. So it must have been a God thing going to deal with this tonight, son. And the fear was to do with this manipulative, intimidating, controlling woman. And um, after I prayed for her, the Lord told me to tell her what I've just told you. I want you to. Know, the Lord wants you to know this woman didn't give you this job; Jesus did. And because Jesus gave you this job, this woman can't get rid of you only jesus can get rid of you so jesus is your real boss and what he wants is for you to respect him in his position of your life and have no fear whatsoever of this woman and don't play ball with her manipulation intimidation just love her to bits do an outstanding job speak kindly to her and of her but never look or act as if you're scared of her no matter what she tries because Jesus is your real boss. Do you know, in the last week and a half since then, her whole attitude to her day job has changed. And uh, another superior is actually dazzled with this girl for her poise and dignity, took her on a special sort of delegation to recruit some Jews for the business that they do. And this is the favor of God. And this girl is completely readjusting. And I believe she's going to lead this boss to the Lord eventually. Because this girl is a needy girl. We're talking about their boss. That's why she behaves as she does. So the Lord is our boss. Have you noticed how much our personal identity, therefore, is often bound up with our jobs? And our first question when we meet someone is, and what do you do? We put it on our passports sometimes. Our application forms, our CVs, our business cards that we hand out. But you know God is more interested in who you are than what you do. What you do is important, but your true identity is a child of God and a servant of the King who may have completely different ideas for the next five years of your life than what you've done in this last five years. Because he can change your course of life just like that did with me. So he talks to us and he lets us in on his secrets. Why? Because our new boss really likes us. In fact, he loves us and he's proud of us and he brags on us to the angels or to the Father, I'm not sure who. But Abraham Kuiper said, there's not a thumb's breadth of this universe over which Christ does not say, it is mine. And if it's his, it's not really theirs. So if it's his, he's in charge of the whole shebang. Doesn't that put a bit of peace and joy in your heart? Here's the second principle from Colossians, that work is to be cooperative with others, not adversarial. So that's why in verses 322 and 4 1, Paul addresses both slaves and masters. There's a recipe for disaster masters and slaves. But work is to be relational. Now you're a Christian, you slaves, and now you're Christians, you masters. This is going to be changed from the way you've learned in Greek and Roman culture. Bring back the humanity into your workplace, he's saying. Yeah. This is a team effort between masters and slaves. You're not in competition with those over you, alongside of you, or beneath you. Those who are your peer levels or those beneath you are in the same business of trying to do a good job to please God. So you don't want to be shirking and getting away with the bare minimum. You're serving God now. And this is about service and cooperation for the good of the company and for the good of all and for our fellow human beings. So, it's going to cease to be a dog-eat-dog world when people are motivated like I'm describing and Paul's addressing here. You're not in competition with others. It is only the gospel and Jesus Christ can bring this motivation to us. Communism... Tried from 1917 onwards to accomplish this by force and coercion where dissenters were punished imprisoned, tortured or assassinated for the good of the cause and you know that experiment failed abysmally everywhere it went it impoverished and controlled people and brought ruin to their lives it gave power to evil people Only Christ can give the proper ordering of society and motivate us at our level to be all that we're meant to be in the task God has given us. In our work, we're serving our neighbor to meet genuine needs. So, provided we're not doing pimping and prostitution or becoming a hitman for the mafia (laughs) or making money illicitly from someone else's folly or greed through gambling and money trading and not fleecing or screwing our neighbors or clients. It means that everything can be done to the glory of God. A street cleaner is serving his neighbor, and that is honorable work. So be faithful as it is what you do. These little things are very important to God, as big things are important to God. In fact, Jesus announced the principle, if you're faithful in little things, you'll be trusted with much. So you have to be good with little things if you want to get on to responsibility with big things. God hasn't got any promotion for big things with men or women who haven't been faithful with little things. Luke 16, 9 and 10. The third principle here is you now work for the glory of God. And how beautiful that is in verse 23. It means your aim is to take the Lord with you and bring Him honor in what you do. It means you work with a good attitude and with the motive to please Him. It means there's a new standard of excellence in what you do. There should be excellence in our churches, shouldn't there? We're serving God. There should be excellence in our design, our music, uh, our preparation for ministry and work, our relationships, and the aesthetics of the place. It should all be excellent. Not necessarily extravagant, but certainly beautiful. And a pleasure to be with one another and in the building. So this means that... We have to be motivated now in a way that may be hard for some. Some people are extrinsically motivated in what they do and others are intrinsically motivated. Extrinsic means you only perform well if someone's constantly encouraging you and telling you what a good job you've done. Extrinsic motivation does get better performance out of people and I'm not saying we shouldn't use it. What I am saying is eventually it shouldn't be necessary. Because what you should be is intrinsically motivated. Nobody looks over my shoulder as to how I spend my time. But I better work harder than any person in this room. Because I've been intrinsically motivated since I was a teenager. I wanted to please Christ. And I don't mean legalistically. I just love Him. I love what He's asked me to do. I love doing what He's asked me to do. You have to stop me from doing it. Ask my wife. So intrinsic motivation means, well, somebody put it like this, the Puritans lived as if they swallowed gyroscopes. We tend to live as if we'd swallowed gallop poles. Gallop poles means you need to have a popular uh, affirmation to do what you do. People voted for you. Do you know it's never really bothered me whether people voted for me or not I've never even applied for a job would you believe? That God, God, God's opened the doors for me and therefore you just feel your life is led and directed by God and I don't, want, I don't want to kick doors open that God isn't opening for me I just want to go through doors God has opened for me I'll test that I'll think carefully about it but I've never felt motivated to push myself forward or promote myself, I'd probably end up in a mess and regret it if I did. Let's just go with the flow of what the Holy Spirit's indicating and be highly intrinsically motivated. So even in this position, I don't primarily work for Westminster Chapel. I work for the Lord. So do you. What a great place to be in. There was a story of Phidias, um, an old Greek sculptor, one of the best ever in Athens, who in the construction of the Parthenon in Athens in the 5th century BC, had erected and climbed the scaffolding to finish the statue of Athena that was to be inserted into the temple. And he was up there for weeks chiseling the hair on the top of the statue of Athena, it's a very tall statue. When the scaffolding came down, who cares? He's chiselling it all and somebody shouted up, Pythagoras, Phidias, rather, Phidias, what are you doing? Taking these weeks carving a head, the hair, for goodness sake, nobody's going to see it. And you know what he replied? God will. Now that's paganism mixed with theism, but God will. And that's it. There's only one person seeing what we do that matters. God will be pleased with it. And if he's pleased, who cares what anybody else thinks? So, to get a true estimate of a person's caliber, notice how much they do beyond what is strictly required of them. Are you a second-mile Christian on the job? (laughs) For your work is a service or ministry and not just a job. So that's why in verse 23, the apostle... I'll just get my Bible open because I didn't put any verse numbers (laughs) in uh, in my notes. In verse 23, he says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So your work is a service or ministry, not just a job. It helps to remove the chaos and disorder due to the fallenness of sin. It will make the world more like God's original design for it. And it will eventually help to make people more like God if you're doing it well. You may make tools or prepare food in a restaurant kitchen. You could fix up sick bodies in a hospital. Or train reluctant young minds to think and use their heads, which they're very reluctant to do in some cases, especially at high school. Or you tally figures to make sure accounts are kept properly. Or broadcast entertainment. Or see that justice is done in the law courts at whatever level you operate in the law. The thing is, whether you help clean streets or keep the environment clean generally, whatever you do is divine service to God and to man. A fable philosophy professor, <coughs> so we'll speak good of philosophy professors, having rubbished them a little earlier, used to draw crowds to his lectures because he was very eloquent, very relevant, and very thought-provoking in what he said. And he would give tough essay assignments to his students regularly. And he was always met with someone who'd come afterward and say, But sir, how long should this essay be? How many pages do you want? And the professor would always wince at that. How many pages do I want? And he'd say something like this. Look, he said, Don't worry about the length. Forget your future career for a moment. Remember that the grade you get is secondary. Just hand in something that you respect. Something that you will be proud of. And let's see what you produce, shall we? Now, I don't know if that hits or rings a bell with you. But it's so right. It's intrinsic motivation. Just do something... You know you did your best for it, and it's good. At least it's the best you can do. So this is divine service, and it means the job done to God's glory is every bit of ministry as what I'm doing right now and what the band will be doing on the platform tomorrow. It means that we're actually serving God and wanting to honor Him and bless people. Now, it's lovely when people say, Thank you for doing that. Um, But then, we should say that to street sweepers if we have half a chance, and nurses and engineers and designers and carpenters and plumbers. After I survived a six-month-long deadly illness called acute pancreatitis, where only between one and two percent of people survive it, I was weeks in intensive care, I was so lovingly looked after, My conscious moments, I could only thank God with tears in my eyes for the labors and pains they were taking to keep me alive. It did help that my wife was coming in with three boys under five years of age, nearly every day, so they knew that it would probably be worth saving this man's life, in spite of the fact it's gonna cost tens of thousands of pounds to do it. But you know, I couldn't wait when I was back on my feet to go back and thank personally those people. You would, wouldn't you? And so everything that's done for us ought to be something we honor as well as expect the honor of Christ. And finally, Christ will reward it. Verse 24 says that Christ is no, that we know that, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there's no partiality. Serving the Lord Christ means that you may command an extraordinary salary in the city, be in the super tax bracket, or live on subsistence wages supplemented by government top-ups. But since your real employer is Christ, there's no, no limit to the ways He can remunerate us. One thing's for sure, the Bible says the labor's wor- laborer is worthy of his hire, and Christ will see that we get what's coming to us. If not now, then. He may send special gifts, however, to you. He may give you a raise. He may see you are promoted suddenly and surprisingly. You may get your dream job. You may stop stuff wearing out like it. He may stop stuff wearing out like it's expected to. Cars just go on and on and washing machines never break down. Those are nice miracles to have, aren't they? (laughs) And he may have someone just suddenly leave you a legacy or some other kind of bonus will come your way. See, there's no limit to what God can do to bless His children who are proving faithful to Him, who He's pleased with and He just wants to reward them now or later. Your boss didn't give you your job. Jesus did. And there's no greater master to work for. Isn't that right? Three conclusions then. If you have really got the message of the theology work I've just given you in these three hours together, I think you'd agree it's a sin to be lazy. The Bible speaks graphically of the sluggard who turns on his bed like a door on its hinges I can't get out of bed in the morning. (laughs) What a life. Prostrate, on your back, dormant. That isn't a life, that is a wasted life. Proverbs tells us, go to the ants. We saw some South American leaf cutting ants in Bristol Zoo on a visit there a couple of years back. Do you know they were making the most of their captivity in that glass box? There they were, a stream of them. Constructive, cooperative teamwork. They were achieving something worth achieving. They were cutting leaves at one end of the glass box and into manageable, carryable sections. And in a relentless lineup of moving ants, were taking them to the other end of the box to take them down a hole. Don't know what for? (laughs) <laughs> they probably knew what they were doing. <laughs> who was I to interfere? They didn't have any foreman who was overseeing them. There was no boss shoving them along, telling them, move along there, move along there. They were just getting on with it. Go to the ant, you sluggard, <laughs> <Brother> says. <laughs> so if a man will not work, he should not eat, Paul wrote. That's hard language, isn't it? We must not encourage a dependency culture that has lost the understanding of the value of work and personal responsibility for your own life. It doesn't say if a man cannot work, however, he should not eat. But if he can work, he should work. Second, it's an evil to suffer in employment. Made in God's image, there's a dignity in work, and if you cannot get it, or are incapable of getting it, you sometimes feel an enormous loss of dignity to your life. Lose that work and you are robbed of dignity. And this may hit a man ten times more than it might hit a woman. I'm not an expert on that, but men love getting satisfaction in their work and feeling responsible for themselves and their loved ones in that sense. so. Thirdly, it's a joy to have work. That may be a surprising statement to make, but it comes from my own personal experience. Work is good. Work is of God. You and I have to relish not only Sunday morning, but like I said, Monday morning too. Thank God it's Monday in two days' (laughs) time. Because we go to work for the Lord. So we not only work for pay, we don't only work for witness and the chance to be with non-Christians. We go to work, to work! Yay! (laughs) Work is intrinsically valuable. It's valuable in itself, it's something God made us to do. It's something by His providence He's prepared us for, and opened opportunities and doors for us to engage in it. And without it, our true humanity is somewhat limited. With it, our true humanity is finding fulfillment. So we'll let the biblical but anonymous philosopher of Ecclesiastes have the last word today. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Ecclesiastes 2.24 Thank you very much for being so patient listening. Bless you. What time is it? It's uh, nearly time to finish. Well, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much. Thank you. you. Shall I just pray then? Yes, please. Our Heavenly Father, we know that sowing seeds produce harvests 30 fold, 60 fold, 100 fold. And I ask, Lord, that the effects of exposure to this theology, this biblical theology of work, which is pertinent to every one of our lives, will lead to consequences way beyond what we've expected. Not only in passing on some of these truths to others we know, Mm. who are poorly motivated, maybe even discouraged and depressed, Mm. or to those who, for one reason or other, are are unable to get employment, but need to know that God is in charge here and trust Him. Maybe do all they can to prepare themselves for new opportunities to open later. But we also pray for ourselves, that there will be a new lightness in our step and a new outlook in our minds as we go about the things you've entrusted us with. We pray that we'll find joy in those tasks and you'll give us new and fresh ones to do in keeping with the gifts you've given us. We pray that our trust and confidence in you will be expanded and we will live to see amazing fruitfulness in terms not only of productivity, but the graces of servanthood and joy, of satisfaction and pleasure in God will also be added to. Intangible as they are, they're perhaps the most wonderful reward for serving you in the practical tasks of daily life. So anoint these people to be givers away of all that they've received and helpful to others to see things from your perspective. In Jesus' name, amen.